Well, church, if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Galatians chapter 5. We're in kind of the last section here of Galatians. And as we continue on, make sure I'm standing where I'm supposed to. Galatians chapter 5. When uh, my oldest was little, um, she tested every boundary that we set. And some of you know JM and you just can't believe it. But believe me, from birth to second grade, I don't think a day went by that she was not experiencing the loving discipline of mom and dad. There was not a thing that she would not challenge, throw a fit about, or just thought we were crazy. And somewhere in the second grade, it started to stop. In fact, I can still remember Janine and I sitting around one day and just kind of talking about how she had not been in trouble for a period of time that we could not explain this miraculous change that God had done. But over the next few years, the pendulum swung. And this child that used to stand up against every evil that she thought, which was anything that happened, became very compliant. And I know that you're saying, isn't that good? Isn't that what you were trying to do? It had really swung too far the other direction. And for the next several years, that happened. And, and I actually started to get concerned until one time in eighth grade. And she decided to challenge me. And I wish I could remember what the challenge was because it was so ridiculously stupid. Oh my goodness, she was so wrong. And it was so, I mean, I, in, in, in the, the fight, and she is face to face arguing with me, there's part of me that is going in my, in my heart. Honestly, as a dad, I'm going, yay. She's standing up for something. And then in the other part of my heart, I'm like, why did she choose this? She's so wrong. And that's how I kind of feel about some of this election stuff. I'm glad some people are really standing up and taking a stand. And then I go, really, this is it? This is the stand you're going to take? You know, I know that so many people are hurting and so many people are wondering if this is the end of days. We might do Revelation in, in the spring. We'll see. But you know, what has really stood out to me is it is very clear that we live in a divided nation. We've had a huge turnout. Some, one uh, study I, I read or one report I read said, we haven't seen voter turnout like this since 1900. Just simply 1900. No numbers on the end of that. That election. And yet, we are almost divided. It's like 50, I think, 1 and 47. I mean, that's a pretty divided nation. And of that division, people are so far on one side or another that it is the good side and the evil side. And so here we are living in these divided times and we're the church. And I just want to tell you from talking with people in the church that even the church is divided on this. I know some of you can't believe that, but they are. And so how are we supposed to live? And I 
those of you who know me know that this, this passage was picked nine months ago for freedom. The Messiah has set you free. Stand for firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The idea of our spiritual freedom does have some references to our political freedoms, but what Paul is going to say here to this church, which by the way, the people he's writing to probably have very little to know political freedom. And so the freedom that he is talking about is not based on an election or who's ruling. It's based on an inward way in which he is calling the church to live. And what does that freedom look like? Before I, before I read the whole passage, let me just give you the crux of that. Look down to verse 6. For in the Messiah Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What does freedom look like in the church of Jesus Christ? It looks like our faith playing itself out in love. And then that's his conclusion in this little section, if you go down to verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we've talked about how Paul just kind of sometimes it's like, what do you mean one word, Paul? That's a sentence. What's the one word? Love. That's the word. But if you bite and devour one another, I just want you to think about that before we jump into the passage has what you said to other people or of what you've written been biting? Would it be seen as devouring, eating somebody up? Or is it through love serving one another? So Paul here in this passage, talking about this freedom, he has two main points. Don't lose your gospel freedom and don't abuse your gospel freedom. Let's jump in. Let me read the passage and we'll jump into the message this morning. Chapter five, verse one. For freedom, the Messiah has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, now remember, not just specifically circumcision. What Paul is saying by using this term is if you're going to submit to these laws as a way of earning God's favor or earning God's salvation. This is one example of it. It's the, the crux of it. But what Paul is saying is if you're going to use these Old Testament laws and celebrations and practices as a way to earn God's favor or as a way to earn salvation. He says, again, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, the Messiah will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, 
we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in the Messiah Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In the case In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, sisters. Only you do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So two points Paul is making. First is that you don't want to lose gospel freedom. And then second, you know, for those of you who have been here for a while, and and it seems like we've been just hammering this going back, don't go back to the law, don't go back to the law. And if you're starting to think that Paul is saying, hey, you can do whatever you want now that you're a Christian. He's just gonna cover that too. It doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want, okay? So don't lose your gospel freedom and don't abuse your gospel freedom. So don't lose your gospel freedom. We're gonna talk about three questions. What is this gospel freedom? What happens when I lose it? Because that's where Paul goes next. And then how do I lose it? So first of all, what is it? We talked about this last week, and we used John Piper's definition here of freedom, and I really liked it. Full freedom is what you have when you, when no, with, when you have no lack of opportunity, no lack of ability, and no lack of desire prevents you from doing what will make you happiest in a thousand years. Sorry, wrong verse there. Wow. Wow. That's scary. Okay, sorry about that. That's not going to help you at all. Um, Full freedom is what you have when, when you lack no opportunity. We talked about last week. No lack of opportunity. Because we have the Spirit, He gives us the opportunity and the ability and the desire to do the things that bring us joy in eternity over the longest part. And so what He says here is that you have freedom. Your freedom is found, your freedom from the guilt and pressure of the law is found in Christ. It's found in the Messiah. That's where our freedom comes from. The ESV, if you have a different translation, it might sound a little bit differently, but the ESV really just grabs the Greek here. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ freed you, literally. And it's in the aorist tense in the Greek, which means it's a single past action that it's now completed. You've been set free. 
But then he also tells us that that freedom is fragile. He says to stand firm in it. Paul tells us this this idea of stand firm, it's almost a military term. And just as our political freedom can be lost if we don't protect it, so our freedom in Christ can be lost if we don't protect it. So he says, don't submit again. Don't, Don't go back to the old way of doing things. And Paul in his way of writing this, it's really kind of fascinating because he keeps doing this. These are, these are Gentiles who are going back to Jewish practices. They're not, going, they're not going back to their practices. They're going back to the Jewish practices. And so he says, don't, that's not going to bring freedom. And going back to your irreligious ways isn't going to bring freedom either. That, neither one of those are going to work. And as I was thinking about this freedom and growing up in a Baptist church, Why is it, we talked about this last week, but what is it that is just so appealing about those rules? And we talked last week about the control that maybe gives us or the feeling of accomplishment. But just in a negative way, I grew up so many times feeling like I wasn't quite good enough. That every time I blew it, I mean, that, that's probably it. That was probably the last straw for God. I mean, surely he can't bless me now. And so I, I want to say this because I need to hear it. And you need to hear it. Nothing you do increases God's love for you. And nothing you have done will decrease God's love for you. God's love for you is complete. It's passionate. It's deep. And he's not waiting for you just to work a little bit harder so he can really love you. He loves you. And the things that you do don't cause him to go, oh, I love them a little bit less. Because he's already paid for that on the cross. So freedom from the guilt and pressure of the law is found in the Messiah. And it's fragile. It's so easy to slip away from that freedom. So what happens when it's lost? Paul jumps right into that. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, that if you lose this freedom, here's what's going to happen. Christ has no value. He's of no advantage. This system doesn't work. In a sense, we've been saying throughout this series, Christ plus nothing equals everything. And what Paul is saying here, and I'm not a mathematician, so don't grade my my math work here, but he's saying, if it's Christ plus something, you automatically subtract Christ. He's no longer part of the equation. He's of no value. And he says, if you're going to go that route, if you want to say, and we've been saying this over and over again, if you want to go the route of earning God's favor and earning your salvation, then you're obligated. You have to do it all. 
And then Paul gets kind of cheeky here and and kind of tongue in cheek says, if they want to go all the way, they should go all the way and emasculate themselves. And you got to catch what he's saying there. It's like, if you want to be, if you want to be committed, go all the way. And so you are obligated to keep the whole law. You don't get to pick and choose which ones you think are the most important. And he says here, they are severed from Christ. They are, they are the word severed to cut suddenly. When you, when you go back and say, I'm going to earn my salvation or I'm going to earn God's favor, at that moment, you're severed from Christ. And so to be cut off, the Greek is, is a little bit more of a drastic word. It means to come to an end. And it says, they have fallen from grace. So if you're following me here a little bit and you've been around church for a while, you're saying, wait a second, pastor. Are you saying, because we know that we once saved, always saved. So are you saying these people are going to lose their salvation? And Paul hears you. And so he says, look the way he addresses this in verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view. Why? Why? Because they're in the, uh, I'm sure when you read this, you're going to agree with me if you're in Christ. You, you, You have to. John says it a different way in 1 John 2, 19. He says, those who turn their back on the faith, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, look, I've confessed all the way through this that there are times when theologically I know that there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. And there's nothing that I have done that has eliminated God's love for me. But practically, practically I slip into that all the time. And so do you. It's just a temptation. And so it's not that we don't, don't wrestle with it. It's, it's that we, that is not going to be our, our way of viewing life in the way in which we live. We know that we can't uphold the law. And so we have to lean into God's grace and his love for us. And then Paul just jumps into the gospel. And I don't have this on your notes. And remember, we've been looking at this pattern in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Paul is firming up the gospel. Chapters three and four, he is reminding the church that they are a multi-ethnic group. And then chapters five and six, his emphasis is gonna be that the gospel creates a multi-ethnic family that is transformed by the spirit. And so he is moving into this work of if If it's not the law, then how are we changed? What do we do with God's holiness? And all these, how do we live in light of that? And Paul's answer is going to be through the Spirit. And in Galatians chapter 5, in this passage, he has a little gospel reminder in verses 4 and 5. In Christ, you are justified through the Spirit by faith as we wait for our glorious glorification. 
So it's this beautiful picture here for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. This completion is coming when Christ returns. And this isn't hope like, man, this isn't hope like when you're going somewhere and you go, ah, man, I, I hope the weather isn't too bad and we can get there safely. Or I hope when I, I hope there's still pumpkin pie left when I get to the Thanksgiving. This is, this is hope is assurance. This is a firm foundation that we're waiting for this righteousness to be completed in us when Christ returns. So how do we lose it? That's what happens, that's what happens when we lose it. How do we lose it? Look at verse 6. This is kind of his introductory statement in here. It's really kind of interesting. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So Paul's introductory statement is that religion doesn't bring you any closer to God. And irreligion doesn't bring you any closer to God. We, we kind of know that. <coughs> But in a sense here, Paul's saying, those religious practices didn't bring you any closer to God any more than those irreligious practices brought you closer to God. Religion doesn't build your character. And you go, well, Dave, I think obeying the law does obey the character. Hold on to that thought. Paul's going to argue with you. And I'm going to take his side. Irreligion doesn't build your character. And so I just want to say this again. And I know this is, this is, I know it's true from Scripture. I know it's hard to hear. Nothing you do increases God's love for you. No, no success that you have make God love you anymore. Nothing I have done will decrease God's love for me. No failures in my life are going to cause God to love me any less. So here's Paul's warning. How, how, do, we, how do we lose it? First of all, through some outside persuasion. He says, you were running well. Okay, so now let's, let's grab his metaphor here. Hard for me. You were running. Now let's assume Paul is thinking of a race here. Because he often uses that analogy. You're running in a race. You're doing well. You're, you're out in front. You're in the front. And you're running well. And he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. So he pictures somebody running up alongside them and hindering them from finishing the race. And all throughout this argument, what he is saying is that these additional requirements to increase God's love for you or to increase God's acceptance for you all they do is hinder you. And, and what Paul has been talking about in this idea of freedom is what we do with our guilt. Because here's, here's how we manipulate people in the church is we make them feel guilty. It sounds something like this. You know, Jesus loved little children. And we have children in the nursery. 
but not enough nursery workers. And if you really love Jesus, you would work in the nursery. But I assume since you think you're too important for the nursery, you're too good. Have you ever heard of, hopefully I have not done that. We guilt people into doing things. Why? Because it works. It works. I'm sorry. Parents use it. Teachers use it. It it works for a period of time. It's disbelief. And here's the disbelief. It is hard for me to believe That God doesn't love me any less because of my failures. It's hard for me to believe that. It's hard for me to live in light of that. I was talking with a friend just this week. And we were talking about some things that were going on. And I said, well, yeah, I guess I could go that route. I hope I learned my lesson the first time that I did this thing. And he said, oh, because God just wants to keep punishing you? Doggone it. I said, I'm preaching on Galatians this week. And he's in a big smile. He goes, don't you hate it when that happens? Yeah, God can't love me any less. God can't love me any less. Right? I just, I go to that. Surely God just wants to, And so he says, you're living in disbelief of what the gospel really is. And some of it is just pride. I want to control this myself. I want to be in charge of this. I want to say, look at me. We talked about that last week. That's what the Judaizers here in this passage are doing. So here's Paul's argument. He says, stand firm in your freedom. Stand firm in your freedom. And And so what do we do with this law? I think Paul sums it up a little bit better in Romans chapter seven. And I read this this morning. I thought this was really helpful to what we're talking about. He says, make sure I'm in Romans chapter seven. There we go. That that makes a little more sense. Verses five and six, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, okay, in in the earthly way of doing things, Notice, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Now, wait a second. Isn't the law supposed to stop our sinful passions? No, look, any of you who have ever been on a diet know how this works. Don't eat the cookie. Don't eat the cookie. Don't eat the cookie. Don't eat the cookie. All I can think about is the cookie. Don't do this. Don't do this. All I'm thinking about is that thing, whatever it is. So he says, listen, he says, for while you were living in the worldly way of doing things, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members to bear fruit for death. But now, but now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that, We serve in a new way of the spirit and not of the old way of the written code. It's not that the 
old code goes away. It's that we can now work in it in our freedom to obey it through Christ. Stand firm in your freedom. Wait, hopefully, for your glorification. You can honestly say this morning, God is not done with me yet. If you're still here, God is not done with you yet. Some of you needed a bigger amen there, but I'm just saying. <laughs> Live out our faith through love. Man, I know that some of us are angry. I know that some are disappointed. I know some of you think that, that there's still, you know, hope or whatever. I, you guys do what you need to do. But doggone it. As a follower of Jesus, people had better see love in you. Love. Now, here's the problem, folks. Love has been um, stolen from the church. And because we didn't do it well, the world has taken love your neighbor and redefined it. And it's going on all over. I don't, I don't want to make the case for it. I'm just telling you it's happened. And I'm not the only one that's noticed it. Gospel writers are writing about this uh, in many different forms. You can read many articles in the Gospel Coalition. Love has been taken from the church. It's been redefined by the world. And they're pushing it in our face. And so um, I... I have worked with this definition of love for a long time and it has served me well. And if you've been around, you've heard it before and you're going to hear it again. In Ephesians chapter five, when Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands, very unpopular passage is why people don't preach on it, but he comes back to husbands and he says, here's, here's, what, here's the harder command. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we all go, okay, yeah, that's great. We love Jesus. That's wonderful. And so he says um, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with washing the water with the word, so that he might present the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle. He says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. He's repeated it. When they repeat it, you should really pay attention. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Okay? And then Paul says, just, you know, in case you guys aren't getting it, let me define how we care for ourselves. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. And that word nourish, to feed, it is the idea of providing. Love provides emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, for the object it loves. Love provides and second, it says, and cherishes. Beautiful word. Cherishes has the idea of when you're, you, remember when we used to hug? <laughs> Some of us are glad that that season's over. But you know, that, that whole cherish to bring in, to hold close, it's a protective. It's bringing in close. Love provides and protects the object it loves. And so, look, love doesn't mean just do whatever you want. Love protects emotionally, physically, spiritually. But our faith is lived out through love. It endures persecution. Paul has been saying this over and over again. Look, 
if you're going to love the way Jesus loved, you're going to be persecuted, uh, just get over it. And really here, what Paul is saying is just believe the gospel. Believe the good news that in Christ you're justified through the spirit by faith. We're waiting for this glorification. Live in that reminder. Now, some of you are freaking out a little bit because I had two points to my sermon. Don't lose our freedom. And the second is don't abuse our freedom. And just in those last few verses, Paul just simply says, don't misuse your freedom. This doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom comes from sacrifice. The, specifically this year, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And freedom always leads to more sacrifice. That's how we stand firm in it. And so he says, these, these things that were weighing you down, they can also build us up. The, and then here's the whole thing. Paul has been saying, you don't have to submit to these laws. You don't have to submit to these laws. And then what does he do? He gives us the big one in the Old Testament. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. These things can build us up and give us the strength to love our neighbor as ourself. So the application and action. Nothing you do increases God's love for you. And nothing you have done will decrease God's love for you. So Christ has loved you, therefore love your neighbor as yourself. Serve other people. Build one another up. It's the opposite of tearing them down and devouring them. I feel like I need to put that little kid. We teach this in grade school. We need to all stick it right in front of our computer screen. You've seen this truth. And the truth stands for this. Like when you're saying something, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Why do I say that? Because some of the things that we're saying and posting during this election, we need to make sure they're true, first of all. Or is it really helpful for you to state it? Is it inspiring? Is it kind? Or is it biting and devouring? Look, don't, don't believe the lie that the church and state is actually separated. I'm glad that our government works that way, but it was never meant for us to not live out our faith in the government, in the world in which we live. It's meant for us to love continually. So my prayer is that as a church, our love would shine because there's nothing I can do to increase God's love for me and there's nothing I can do that will decrease his love for me. May I love people the same way. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the challenges of your word and for our time of worship. Uh, these are hard words and during hard times, but we know that you are good. And so, Father, I pray that we would lean into your goodness, lean into your love for us. And as a church, we would look for new ways to love our neighbor that we would look for new ways to love our enemy. That we would look for new ways to love those who disagree with us. That our love would shine for your glory and for your kingdom 
and for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.